my opinion, uh, expressive individualism is the most serious and the most dangerous challenge facing Christians today. Um, expressive individualism repudiates many key elements of the Christian faith. And unfortunately, expressive individualism is influencing Christians. It's influencing the church today. So this sermon is an unusual one, and Tim alluded to that earlier. It's an unusual sermon because its focus is on understanding how the majority of Americans think today. And you would be forgiven if right now you're thinking to yourself, expressive individualism. This sounds like some fancy theoretical thing, you know, like college professors get excited about. And it probably isn't very practical. Um, so uh, I'm going to begin with uh, some practical examples of how expressive individualism shows up in America today, okay? Before we do that, would you join with me and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to bless our time here this morning, okay? Lord Jesus Christ, even as we have read in your word and sung, you are worthy. And we bow before you as your people, as your creatures. Please bless this time this morning. Would you please cause your word to come alive? Would you please cause us to think Christianly about our culture and how we engage with it? I ask this for our sakes, but I ask this for your sake, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your glory, please. Amen. Amen. So here are five examples. The chief end of man is to enjoy life as much as possible. This is the belief that the number one purpose in life is to be as happy as you possibly can be. A national survey was taken six years ago. And in that survey, 84% of Americans, 84% said the highest goal in life is to pursue the things that you desire the most and make you happiest. Whatever you believe is right. Or whatever you believe works best for you is the only truth that matters for you. So this is the belief that to find purpose or direction or satisfaction in life, you must look within yourself. Because you are the only reliable judge of what will make you happy. And as a result, you need to trust your own feelings. You need to trust your instincts. Because the things that are deep down inside of you, your desires, your preferences, your opinions, they're all good and trustworthy. That same survey I referenced a moment ago, six years ago, revealed that 60% of all Americans... And three-fourths of all millennials, and a millennial is someone who's aged somewhere between the age of 25 and 42 today. 
60% of all adults, but three-fourths of all millennials agreed with this statement. Whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth that you can know. Traditional authorities, things like the church, the Bible, parents, political leaders, school teachers, law enforcement, these authorities are wrong so often that they cannot be trusted. And we really don't have to listen to them. You know, more than ever before, Americans are rejecting traditional external authority. And instead, Americans are relying on internal authority, the internal authority of their own desires and opinions and intuitions. The, the, the self-centered trinity of me, myself, and I has become the spiritual and moral compass for the majority of Americans today. So much so that traditional authorities have no right to tell a person what is right and wrong or how to live his life. In fact, look, we, look, in fact, many today praise the man who throws off traditional rules, rejects traditional behaviors, and instead does exactly what he feels. He says exactly what he thinks. Right? Today we call that being unfiltered. And we applaud the man who obeys only himself, who breaks the rules, says whatever he thinks, the nonconformist who is, who is true to himself. You know, a few years ago, we saw this very vividly. There was a prominent national politician uh, who repeatedly said in public some really cringeworthy things. Um, he used crude and vulgar language. He demeaned women, uh, used unacceptable sexual humor in joking about sexual morality, never apologized for it. But the politician supporters ignored the content of what he said, all the crudeness and vulgarity. They ignored that. Instead, they praised him for being authentic, for being unfiltered, for ignoring the traditional rules of decency, and instead saying exactly what he thought. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is okay. Of course, this is the belief that every person has the authority and the right to define marriage as he pleases, even if the definition permits Adam to marry Bruce. And every person has the liberty to define his own sexuality, even if he concludes that he is really a woman trapped inside a man's body. Not only that, he has the legal right to live as a woman. You know, this is just an example of people asserting their authority to do it in the past. Only God did, which was define what is natural for humans, what's normal, what's healthy. 
You've heard this. I know you have. Do not criticize someone else's life choices. People have a right to be free from such criticism. In fact, it is inadequate to merely tolerate someone whom you think is wrong. Saying to that person, I think you are wrong, but I will tolerate you, is really bigotry and maybe even hate speech. You must instead support that person. You actually have to applaud that person and start thinking he's right. Now, I I, I give you these examples only to say, hey, this is all around us, right? Sometimes I read this and I go, this is like, this is like the water in which we live and we're like the fish. You know, this is just everyday life. Um, all of these examples are the result of a heresy, really a worldview level heresy called ex- expressive individualism. And expressive individualism is the name of a worldview, which means it's a collection of beliefs that is the majority opinion among people aged 40 and under. And it's widely embraced as a way of thinking among people in their 40s and 50s. And it's a mentality that's less common among people aged 60 and older. Expressive individualism is dominant throughout Western civilization. You see this in England. You see this in Britain. You see it in Germany, uh, Israel, Australia. Uh, Today, our focus is on the United States. And before I go further, I, I need to just take a moment and explain what I mean by this phrase, worldview. Uh, that term may be unfamiliar to you, but it's not a complicated one, although it is a really critical one. So every person has a worldview. A worldview is just your collection of beliefs and assumptions and goals regarding the world and how the world works. And how we live in our world. And usually people do not think intentionally and purposefully about their worldview. They don't sit down with a piece of paper and write it out. But they still have one. And and hence that's why we use the term worldview. It's how someone views the world. It's how they think about the world and their place in it. And a worldview operates underneath or behind, maybe in the background of everything a person thinks and does. And what makes a worldview so important is that it informs and shapes and influences almost everything that a person thinks and does. Let me just give you just an example. When I say, if, if, if this is an odd concept to you, so what is a worldview? Just imagine that I go to one of the Winchester McDonald's here, okay, and I just grab an unsuspecting hamburger eater, and I say, hey, Bubba, come here. Can I ask you some questions? And he says, sure, well, go ahead. And I sit down, and I say, okay, uh, what do you believe is the purpose of life? And the person tells me. And I say, what are the things that you believe most often prevents you from accomplishing your purpose in life. 
And the person tells me. And I say, what do you believe is the best way to be happy? And the person gives me his opinion. And How do you decide what is right and wrong? And the person tells me. I ask, who or what authority can actually correct you and tell you you're wrong and make you change? And the person tells me. And I ask the person, what are the things in life that are so important to you that you'll sacrifice for them? I mean, they're that important. And the person tells me. And what the person just told me was their worldview. That's what a worldview is. They just told me um, how they think about the world and how they think about how they live in the world. And maybe for you and I, maybe the best example of a worldview uh, is our Christian worldview which is the sum total of all the things that we think the Bible teaches about God and humans and the world and sin and Jesus and morality, right? So we kind of have a collection of those things, don't we, in our head. And isn't this true? Your Christian worldview serves as a kind of filter or a lens for making sense of everything in your life. Something comes at you and you go, oh, yeah, I know how to explain that. And so your Christian worldview is kind of always running in the background of your mind, right? It's kind of always going on back there. Well, expressive individualism is a worldview. It's the way that most Americans think today. And although few use the phrase expressive individualism, and, and, and you may have never heard the phrase. It's, it, it's still a reality. It's still what is going on in America today. So what I want to try to do is here just for a few minutes, just try to say, what, 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 is, what is expressive individualism? I mean, what is this worldview that people embrace? Well, here's, here's maybe at ground zero what expressive individualism is. Hyper-individualism. Now, to be sure, there is such a thing as a healthy and biblical individualism, right? God created you as an individual. He knows your name as an individual. God affirms your value as an individual. You're individually accountable to God. The Lord Jesus Christ died to save individuals from their individual sins, right? But unbiblical, expressive individualism says, I am at the center of everything. What comes first are my rights, my desires, my fulfillment, my satisfaction. Expressive individualism says that the core of every person is a collection of feelings and desires, and instincts, and intuitions. And in order to be healthy, in order to be whole, a person must fully express his or her unique feelings, desires, instincts, and intuitions. Feelings. What makes you happy? What makes you confident? What makes you optimistic? Desires, like, I want to feel good about myself. I want to be loved. I want to be respected. 
I want sexual satisfaction. I want to be physically comfortable. Your instincts and intuitions. That's when you say things like, my common sense tells me I need to do X. Or, I have this feeling inside of me that tells me Y is right and Z is wrong. Or, it seems reasonable and logical that I should do A. But deep down inside, I feel like I need to do B. Or just, my instincts tell me I should do C. Well, expressive individualism says that your happiness, your fulfillment, your contentment requires you to not restrain your feelings, desires, instincts, and intuitions. To not restrain them in any way, you must give them full expression. And hence the phrase expressive individualism, right? You're expressing all those kind of core-level individual traits. In fact, expressive individualism says that these core things, your feelings, desires, instincts, and intuitions, are so indispensable to a person's happiness that every person has a right to pursue them, a right to enjoy them, which means laws must protect your right to do those things. And at least in 2022, we use phrases like this to describe this. We say, I'm just living my truth. I'm being true to myself. I'm being authentic. And just the most extreme example of this is the whole phenomenon of transgenderism. uh, That a man might declare that despite the fact that he is physically a man, I mean, despite the obvious fact that he has a male's body, he says, my feelings, desires, instincts, and intuitions tell me I'm really a woman. And so his feelings, his instincts, overrule everything even the objective biological facts in his body. And so that person says his happiness, his health, right, his wholeness requires that he live his truth and identify as a woman. And so laws have to protect this person's right to live as a woman. Now, as you might have surmised, even as we've been up to this point, you might have said that a lot of these feelings, desires, instincts, and intuitions really are uh, psychological. Um, They often deal with the extent to which a person feels respected, feels condemned or criticized, feels supported and protected, feels harmed or hurt. And so people in an expressive individualism society like ours, they say things like this. I have a right to feel accepted and endorsed and supported by other people. They say I have a right 
to feel good about myself. So no one has a right to make me feel bad about myself. In fact, you're abusing me. You're hurting me when you make me feel bad about myself. People say things like, I feel psychologically hurt when you say that to me. Therefore, you have no legal right to say that. And when you say that thing that damages me psychologically, you're engaging in what we could call hate speech. And that's verbal abuse. Expressive individualism demands that these inner feelings, desires, instincts, and intuitions overrule all external authorities. In other words, your self is authoritative. Laws, governments, churches, parents, employers may not restrict a person's feelings, desires, instincts, or intuitions. In fact, a person's inner core self is the only legitimate authority in that person's life. And that means that every person must be freed from the demands and expectations of religion, of society, of parents, of government, of someone else's moral code. And in fact, you are violating someone's rights. You're hurting that person. If you challenge, disapprove, or frustrate the full expression of his inner core self, in fact, to, to hinder, to even question someone else's self-expression, whatever that expression might be, that's to commit a kind of violence against him. Isn't that how we think today? You've actually hurt the person. In the, because, now, now catch this, that this is why, because it's not just a criticism of his decisions. It's regarded as a criticism of who he is as a person. Because in the world of expressive individualism, your decisions are just the expressions of your core identity. So criticism is regarded as preventing a person from being who he really is. Disapproval is regarded as the equivalent of saying your innermost feelings, desires, instincts, and intuitions are wrong and unacceptable. So you are an inferior person. You're defective. And I'm superior to you. That's why increasingly in America today, tolerance is inadequate. Tolerance is not enough because tolerance withholds approval. We have to go beyond tolerance and say, I applaud and support what you do. And look, listen, some of you all have experienced this, that uh, even today it's, it's, it's common for a parent to say to his erring child, I love you, I care for you, I will help you but I disapprove of your homosexual life decisions. Those decisions are wrong. 
And then for the child to reply, if you feel like that, then you do not really love me. You hate me because you hate what I am. And the parent in vain says, no, I love you. I disprove your decisions. Because back in the old days, the pre-expressive individualism days, we distinguish between a person and a person's decisions. Expressive individual does not make that distinction, though. They're all the same. A person's decisions. That's only the outward expression of all that the person is internally. Sorry. I have one more. This it may be on the handout. I missed on this slide, and this is letter F. Okay, sorry. Uh, letter F. People who are prevented from expressing their core feelings, desires, instincts, and intuitions, people who are prevented from doing that are victims, and they deserve political protection. Now look, everyone including me and you, wants humans to be healthy and safe. No one, including me and you, wants people to suffer or to be deprived of basic human legal rights. But in a world of expressive individualism, nothing is more essential to a person's health and well-being than the full expression, the full self-expression of all his inner core desires. And therefore... Nothing causes more pain and more suffering and more discrimination than preventing someone from living his truth, from being authentic. That's why in our expressive individualism world, the person who is prevented from expressing his individualism gets angry, says there's injustice here. He gets indignant. He's self-righteous. I've been wronged. It says government needs to protect me. He needs to protect my radical self-expression. Now, I've tried to identify just six tenets of expressive individualism, but expressive individualism is a worldview. It's a collection of many beliefs, I identified six. I could identify 26. Those are just the main ones. There's a fair question here, which I'll just address very briefly, and that is, why today? Why why is this so pervasive in 2022? Well, the story is that expressive individualism is not new. It was first discussed by both Christians and non-Christians back in the 1990s. So what caused expressive individualism to surface in the 1990s and become so strong today? Well, well, really two things. First, it's going to be no surprise for you to hear that Americans' belief in God, confidence in the Bible, has been decreasing for the past 130 years. But you know, as late as 10 years ago, 92% of all Americans said they still believed in God. We're not a nation of atheists. But there's a second thing that's happening. At least up until 1990 or so, 
for all of American history, Americans have had confidence in other traditional sources of authority. They had confidence in parents and families, political leaders, schools, military leaders. And all of those institutions endorsed and reinforced traditional ideas of right and wrong, biblical ideas of noble self-sacrifice, compassion. They all agreed that selflessness, faithful marriages were all good, trusting one's parents was wise. But really, in, in the last 30 years, Americans' confidence in those traditional authorities has plummeted. So for the first time in American history, we're really seeing two things happening simultaneously. Growing distrust of God and the Bible and growing distrust in parents, families, schools, political leaders, and military. And as confidence, as respect for those external authorities has been diminishing, What's the only alternative? For many Americans, it is to trust your own internal and personal sense of right and wrong. So expressive individualism happened when people thought they could not trust the Bible, their parents, the church, political leaders, school teachers. And for a lot of especially younger Americans today, They think the only reasonable authority, the only reliable authority, is me, myself, and I. So I I, I hope, I trust, that it's obvious to you that expressive individual isn't just bad. Um... It's not just a few wrong ideas. It really rejects the basic foundations of Christianity. For example, no, (laughs) the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And how do we how do God's people glorify him? Well, here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whatever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The Christian's fundamental mentality is not to indulge himself, but to deny himself, right? It's it's not to save his own life. It's to lose his life. It's not to live for his own pleasure. It's to live for Christ's pleasure. And look, isn't this like Christianity 101? that the Christian life is the cross life. And the cross is an instrument of death. 
Jesus' followers die to promoting themselves. They die to gaining the things the world has to offer. Perish the thought that I would live for my feelings, desires, and intuitions, and, and, and instincts. I need to die to those things. Jesus' followers live to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbors as themselves. Isn't, isn't following Jesus the opposite of a self-centered individualism that insists on my rights, my desires, my fulfillment, my satisfaction always coming first? Isn't that why the result of living the Christian life is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. So, look, God created you for his pleasure. So your chief end is not about you. It's about God. The Bible says repeatedly that God's people must not do what they themselves think is right. They must not be wise in their own eyes, but instead must obey God's commandments. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. You know that you know these verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make you straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. You know, when I read that verse, I think sometimes we misunderstand the word woe. We think maybe like of uh, Eeyore. And we go, oh, woe is me, you know, not much of a tail for not much of a donkey, and woe, woe. That's not what it meant. When the Hebrew prophet said woe, that meant judgment is pronounced. That's not what the word woe means. That was Isaiah saying, woe to those. God's judgment falls upon those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Paul says this in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, verse 16, never Be wise in your own sight. You know, one of sin's greatest evils is that we do not realize how deeply sin corrupts us and distorts us and deceives us, even in our thinking. And we think we know the right way to do things. That's why the Bible says, do not be wise in your own eyes. What does God say? Numbers chapter 15 Remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes. Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. I mean, when I hear that phrase, wise in your own eyes, that's what it means to consult my own feelings, desires, intuitions, and instincts and say, you know what? I've consulted me, myself, and I, and this is what's the best thing to do. That's 
the essence of being wise in my own eyes. You know, the Bible says that because of our sin, sin which has corrupted the entirety of our being, including our inner core self, we are the ones who are habitually wrong. We're the ones that can't be trusted. My sin makes me the illegitimate authority. Listen to how Paul characterizes this in Romans chapter 6. This is verses 17 and 18. Paul says to Christians, he says, you were once slaves of sin. Back when I lived according to my feelings and desires and instincts and intuitions, I was a slave to sin. That's what I was. You were once slaves of sin, but have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed. When a person gets saved, he willingly, enthusiastically obeys God. An external standard, what God says is right or wrong, which often is contrary to what I want to do. In other words, that... Paul continues there. He says, you were once slaves of sin, but have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Paul says it was slavery when we rejected God's rightful authority over us and instead obeyed our feelings, desires, instincts, and intuitions. But he says it's freedom. It's freedom when we die to that and we instead live according to God's authority. Do you you realize that that's why what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, so powerful when Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, you think you need food to live? You also need God's instructions. You need God's laws. You need the words that come from God's mouth and external authority. Psalm 19 tells us, Not just that God's authority is legitimate, but it's actually good for us. It's it's how we prosper, right? Psalm 19, just two verses from it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, that's an external authority, isn't it? It's not me. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You know, sexuality deals with our most basic physical and biological desires. Sexuality touches the very essence of who and what we are. Perhaps nothing is more personal, more private, 
more sensitive than sexuality. But God, who created you, has authority even over your sexuality. He's the creator. You're the creature. Every square inch of you is under God's authority. That's why the Holy Spirit can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. God regards sexual sins as equal in seriousness to theft, greed, idolatry. And, and you know, have you ever wondered why sexuality seems to be the battleground in our culture today? It, it, at least here's one reason. It, it's, it's not because ungodly people just want to maximize their sexual pleasure. I mean, do you know who invented sexual pleasure? God did. I mean, God's pro-sexual pleasure. He approves of sexual pleasure. Sexuality is a battleground because God searched authority even in the most sensitive and personal areas of your life. And instead of submission to their king and creator, many choose cosmic treason. God does not command you to persecute non-Christians. God does not command you to maliciously insult them, to humiliate them, to injure them physically. God never commands you to do those kinds of things. But there are biblical commands like these. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. God's judgment on such people. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus said to his followers, You're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, in Jesus' day, salt was a preservative. It stopped things from rotting and going bad. For example, salt was beaten into unrefrigerated meat so the meat would not spoil. Salt kept things from rotting and becoming useless. And Jesus says Christians are the world's salt. We are the moral preservative. We articulate, we explain, we demonstrate God's moral standards. And in doing so, we help to keep the sin-corrupted world from becoming as bad as it could be. But Jesus' words there are that we, we have become the useless ones. 
if we stop being salt. If we stop acting like the moral preservative in society, if we don't identify evil as evil, if we don't expose them biblical behaviors, Expressive individualism is a worldview in that it it lays out how to view the world, how to think about the world, and how to live in the world. In that regard, expressive individualism is really kind of like a religion. It's a system of beliefs about reality and how you live, in my opinion. Expressive individualism is the most anti-Christian religion in the world today. So how's expressive individualism influencing some Christians? You know, it's, it's, it's regrettable, but it's not surprising that expressive individualism is leaking into the church. I, I say not surprising because... Expressive individualism is all around us. You, you can't escape it, right? I mean, there's no way to ignore it. Um, these are just three quick examples. Something I'll call me-centered worship. Hey, God-approved worship reorients me away from myself and directs me toward God. It focuses on glorifying God, praising Jesus, Concerning the Trinity's majesty and beauty, God-approved worship is not about us. It's about God. But expressive individualism can lead us to think that the purpose of worship is for us to feel spiritual. We can be tempted to think that worship is only good when it makes it feel good, it makes, when it makes us feel good. And expressive individualism can make us think that instead of worship reorienting us toward God, it's really about boosting our mood and making us feel better about ourselves. So thanks to expressive individualism, sometimes worship can get flipped on its head. Instead of being directed at God, it ends up getting directed at me. Here's a second way. I call this obeying God only when we agree with him. You know, thanks to expressive individualism, some Christians are not really persuaded that their sin seriously handicaps their thinking, their moral judgment, their instinctive sense of right and wrong. And when their feelings are in conflict with what God says in his word, they do not always submit to God's authority. Sometimes we choose to obey our own desires, our own instincts, our own intuition. And when that happens, God's not commanding. He's just giving suggestions. And in practice, if expressive individualism tempts us to do that, then we're just behaving like non-Christians, right? Because listen, 
even non-Christians will do what God says to do if they happen to agree with God, right? What makes Christians different is we obey God even when it hurts, even when we might disagree. There's a third way expressive individualism can leak into the church. Expressive individualism tempts us to think that we know best what we need to thrive and be happy. It leads us to think that our personal needs, our feelings, our happiness are of the utmost importance, and therefore all other relationships to other people, to other organizations, to the leaders of other organizations, those are all of lesser importance. So we're tempted to avoid making commitments to other church members or to the church's elders because such commitments might require me to sacrifice my own comfort. Such commitments mean I might have to die to my own happiness. I might have to give up my own time. And I might have to do this to secure what's best for other people. See, making commitments like that mean I might miss out on what I think is most important for my comfort and happiness. And so we're tempted to not, to not do what Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, which is count others more significant than ourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And when that happens, look, it just becomes easy to treat church the way we treat Costco. You know what we do at Costco? We show up to get what we think we need. We say no thank you when there's something we think we don't need. Maybe when the elders call us to do something or offer us something, and we say, no, I don't think I want that one. We only take what we like. And you know, when we're at Costco... We don't help other Costco shoppers to live better. But we're very polite to them. And it's very easy to be in a church, but to not really help others to live their lives better. Although we usually are very polite. It's the last thing I'm going to say today, okay? So, 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 so how does the church kind of persuade the broader non-Christian culture that expressive individualism is all wrong? You know, back in the 1990s, when Christian leaders first forecast that a hurricane of expressive, expressive individual was coming, they said back then that self-indulgent, me-centered Americans would be won over when they saw the opposite of expressive individualism in practice. That is, when they saw vibrant and muscular local churches where Christians really do live lives, where they're committed to each other and they sacrifice for one another. 
And they don't live according to their feelings, desires, instincts, and intuitions. Rather, they promote each other's well-being. They said this back in the 1990s, and back they even pointed out back then that that's how the early Christian church conquered the Roman Empire. The early church didn't promote Christian politicians who took seats in the Roman Senate. And the early church didn't become, those Christians weren't the most popular, successful, wealthy, and hip people in the Roman Empire. What happened was, by being the church, by being the only caring, loving, non-self-centered community in the land, non-Christians throughout the Roman Empire were won over. And Christianity became the dominant religion when people saw Christianity in action. So look, it, it is true. It is true that today, me and you must tell people that expressive individualism is wrong. We need to expose the many unbiblical aspects of expressive individualism and set before folks the biblical alternative. We need to explain that. And listen, we need to proclaim the gospel that sins are forgiven through the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing in expressive individualism about a payment for sin. But we must also be able to show people so they can see for themselves that expressive individualism does not work. It does not deliver the enduring happiness that they think they're going to get. Only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ creates people in a community that enjoy meaningful and noble and satisfying lives. Look, the the antidote to expressive individualism is many healthy local churches. But churches that are something like a colony, a colony that's been planted by heaven, a colony where you and I are the colonists, so that outside the church, People live as self-centered individualists. Each person living like the chief end of man is to enjoy life as much as possible, right? But inside the church, Christ's people are not self-centered individualists. We do not live to express our individualism. We live to express the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Look, we live to express the image of of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's being formed in us. No, Scripture says Christ is being formed in you, expressed by individualism. Now, I want to express the Lord Jesus Christ, who's being formed in me. We need to live in a community where more people say, me for the community, than say the community for me. We need to regard each other's interests as more important than our own. People out there in the world, they're going to be persuaded when they see a community where people really work to secure what is in each other's best interests. Or we bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. 
and live in harmony with one another. You know how we know that strategy is going to work? Because Jesus said it would. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right now, the Lord Jesus Christ is building his church. He's building his church through you, Christian. And Jesus and his church are sure to win. Amen? Is that true? Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would bless us. Please cause us to see your unmatchable beauty, your perfection, your winsomeness. I pray that you would bless us for your namesake, that we would not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Please make us eager not to express ourselves, but to deny ourselves and take up our cross to follow you daily, please. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.